right, we are back. We sometimes do obituaries on this program, and what better obituary to start with in our third segment today than that of Oral Roberts. We have to admit, some obituaries make us less unhappy than others. Oral Roberts was certainly a giant in the field of religious hucksterism. Back in 1946, when he got into the game, he founded the Oral Roberts Evangelistic Association in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and began conducting crusades across America and around the world. You've seen this type of evangelism on television, where the, the sick are healed. And uh, Oral Roberts was, you know, at, at ground zero of all this kind of stuff. Back in 1954, he bought a television camera into his services and provided what he liked to call a front row seat to miracles. And uh, Roberts was able to, uh, to use the new, mel- the new medium of television to uh, make so much money, he founded his own university in Oklahoma back in 1963. Oddly enough, although they have a medical school, uh, Oral Roberts passed away in Newport Beach. We have no evidence as to whether the extensive laying of the hands failed to cure him this last go-round. I don't remember the exact year, but it was about uh, 1986 or so when Roberts announced that God had spoken to him and announced that he was going to call him home unless he was able to raise $6 million. This actually became a, an international news story for a while, which I think caused people all over the world to sort of shake their head and wonder about certain segments of the American public once again. He supposedly needed the money to raise a medical missionary center from around the world, and at one point a racetrack owner cut him a check for $6 million. Apparently, the center was started, but uh, closed uh, three years later. Uh, No word on what happened to the millions raised. My personal favorite uh, story among all the many stories of this goofball was that in 1977, he announced he had a vision of a 900-foot-tall Jesus who told him to found the City of Faith Medical and Research Center. His biography said the center was aimed at merging the healing power of medicine and prayer. The part I love about this is, why 900 feet? It could have been a 90-foot Jesus or a 9,000-foot Jesus. How is it it was 900 feet? And how was Oral able to assess the height of his Savior? It's a mystery he apparently is taking to the grave. Yes, I just can't get enough of this Pentecostalist type of of preacher. Uh, You know, Oral Roberts, back in 1987 stirred up some, uh, some controversy when his son, Richard, claimed he had seen his father raise a child from the dead. I remember talking to a guy once who had attended Oral Roberts, at least for a while, or had passed through or something, and he was describing how they regularly had prayer meetings in which people would then roll on the floor and speak in tongues. He thought that was a rather colorful addition to the medical school curriculum. Anyway, I suppose you shouldn't speak ill of the dead, but when you've got a guy as loathsome a character as Oral Roberts, it's hard to hold back. In fact, we're fairly sure if there is a hell, Oral Roberts is burning in it now. And uh, we hope uh, we, he's joined uh, Jerry Falwell beachside at the Lake of Fire to take a little dip. Anyway, I'm being pretty awful when I say all that, but uh, I don't care. This would be a good time to remind you, however, that any opinion expressed on this program does not necessarily represent those of KDVS, our sponsors, or the Regents of the University of California. And you can be absolutely 100% positive that any opinion heard in this program does not reflect that of the Oral Roberts Evangelistic Association. All right, let's talk about something a little more 
serious. And to do that, we're going to go back to New Scientist. I'll start with a quote from the editorial page, which states, The time's up for psychiatry's Bible. Rewriting the standards for an entire medical field in one go is unnecessary and dangerous, said the magazine. Books are, by and large, writing out the outline revolution that is devastating the sales of many newspapers, magazines, and other printed works. But this week, we report on a volume that has outlived its usefulness. The American Psychiatric Association, APA, is in the midst of rewriting the mammoth tome called The Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, or DSM, which provides checklists of symptoms that psychiatrists and other doctors use to diagnose what form of mental illness a patient has. And fights are breaking out all over. Notes the magazine, the final wording of the new manual will have worldwide significance. DSM is considered the Bible of psychiatry, and if the APA broadens the diagnostic criteria for conditions such as schizophrenia and depression, millions more people could be placed on powerful drugs, some of which have serious side effects. Similarly, newly defined mental illnesses that deem certain individuals a danger to society could be used to justify locking these people up for life. Given such high stakes, we should all be worried by the controversy. Proponents of some of the changes are being accused of running ahead of the science, and there are warnings that the APA is risking disastrous unintended consequences if it goes ahead with plans to publish DSM-5, as the new manual will be known, in 2012. The magazine says it doesn't have to be this way. With the advent of the Internet, there is no longer any compelling need to rewrite the diagnostic criteria for the whole of psychiatry in one go. This is worth taking a look at, and I want to quote from the article itself about Psychiatry's Civil War by Peter Aldhaus. Says Mr. Aldhaus, Psychiatry suffers in comparison with other areas of medicine, as disease of the mind are on the whole less well understood than those of the body. We have as yet only glimpses into the fundamental causes of the common mental illnesses, and there are no biological tests to diagnose them. This means conditions such as depression, schizophrenia, and personality disorders remain difficult to diagnose with precision. Doctors can only question people about their states of mind and observe their behavior, classifying illness according to the most obvious symptoms. First published in 1952, the DSM has its origins in a book used by the U.S. military to, deter to determine if recruits were mentally fit for combat. Over the years, its influence has grown, and today it is used by doctors across the globe. The wording used in the DSM has a significance that goes far beyond questions of semantics. The diagnoses it enshrines affect what treatments people receive and whether health insurers will fund them. They can also exacerbate social stigmas and may even be used to deem an individual such a grave danger to society that they're locked up. Some of the most acrimonious arguments stem from worries about the pharmaceutical industry's influence over psychiatry. This has led to the spotlight being turned onto the financial ties of those in charge of revising the manual. We've talked about this on this program before. The article notes that using current DSM checklists, you can have 114 different combinations of symptoms that can lead to a diagnosis of schizophrenia adding at the same time that many patients prove hard to fit into the framework. It's an obviously very imperfect system, and there's a move afoot to try and replace these sprawling checklists of the DSM with some sliding scale measurements of underlying determinants of mental health. 
But this article notes that critics worry that even a limited embrace of this dimensional approach is running ahead of the science. And as it's being rewritten, there's a concern that uh, the DSM-5 might include some new categories to capture mild forms of illnesses like schizophrenia, depression, and dementia. The results, the critics say, would be a wholesale medicalization of normality that will lead to a deluge of unneeded medication. A quote from the article, For example, one work group is considering whether it's possible to catch people in the early stage of schizophrenia or other psychotic illnesses before they have their first full-blown psychotic episode. Some doctors prescribe antipsychotic drugs at this early stage in the hope of stopping the illness from progressing. An intelligent person would have to ask at this point, is there any evidence that doing that works? In other words, you change where you set the bar, you decide that uh, the criteria is met more easily, and then you place the person on medications. Has anyone shown that holds any promise to prevent progression of the disease? This is a question that needs to be asked of psychologists and psychiatrists by uh, patients and the public at large. The truth of the matter is that record numbers of people are being placed on psychiatric medications. The use of antidepressants alone is, is, is pervasive in America, and, and, I, and as a physician, I just have to question how long we place people on these medications. They're, they're wonderful. If properly used, they certainly have a role to play. They can be life-changing. They can be life-saving. But does someone need to remain on them for 10 years? But the problem is, how do you know when someone's better? And if they get better, shouldn't they be able to come off the medication? I don't know, this correspondent certainly shares the concern of, of the psychiatrists that are questioning this revision, the DSM-5. The possibility that it will extend definitions of mental illness so broadly that tens of millions of us will be given unnecessary and risky drugs seems a, a very, uh, actually, a very probable outcome. I have to say, psychological research can be hard to do. There's a lot of ink recently about loneliness being a contagious disease based on some research done in the famous Framingham study. If you're not familiar with the Framingham study, it started in 1948, where generations of residents in Framingham, Massachusetts have participated in regular medical examinations, which were originally intended to study the spread of heart disease. But over the years since then, researchers have used the same group to track obesity, smoking, and things like happiness over long periods of time. I love the fact that a new study using the Framingham uh, population has analyzed loneliness and found that it spreads like a communicable disease. They connected up individuals and noted that people who were lonely tended to apparently induce loneliness in others. But I'm reading, I'm reading the, the write-up on this in The Economist, and it says the following. Feeling lonely is more than just unpleasant for those who yearn to be surrounded by warm relationships. It is a health hazard. Numerous studies show that loneliness reduces fruit fly lifespans. Oh, I had to stop right there. I stop right. How do they know the fruit flies are lonely? Comma. Increases the chances of mice developing diabetes. How do they know the mice are lonely? And causes a host of adverse effects in people, including, including cardiovascular disease, obesity, and weakening of the immune system. Well, you can at least ask the person if they're lonely. But even that isn't the most precise way to gauge something, is it? I don't know. For what it's worth, the report in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology is that loneliness formed in clusters of people and that once one person in the social network started experiencing feelings of loneliness, 
others in the same network would start to feel the same way. And these, ex- these, these effects spread as far as three degrees of separation. Those who had immediate contact with lonely people were 50% more likely than average to feel lonely. People who knew people who had direct contact with lonely people, the figure dropped to 25%. And those with three degrees of separation showed only a roughly 10% increase. I don't know. Sometimes I think this whole thing is... We've only got a few minutes left, but here's an item I think will interest uh, many of you. The Sacramento Bee uh, on Tuesday noted uh, in an article by Jim Sanders that uh, if you're a Californian willing to invest big hours for a shot in making history, you have an opportunity coming your way. Dedicated citizens are wanted to redraw California's political districts. California is going to begin implementing a Power to the People initiative, Prop 11, passed by voters last year, which is going to uh, have the state auditor, Elaine Howe, begin accepting applications for a 14-member Citizens Commission that will draw state legislative and Board of Equalization districts. This power has been entrusted to the legislature in the past, which has then carved up safe districts for its members, and in the process of enhancing their job security, created a uh, divided legislature composed of individuals from safe Republican districts and safe Democratic districts who are not necessarily in the middle and uh, are more ideologically pure, I guess you could say, and people not given to compromises. And since compromise is a necessary part of the political process, many people blame this issue of gerrymandering uh, uh, for why we have such legislative gridlock in California. And I would urge you, dear listener, to just for fun sometimes, check out some of the assembly districts, state assembly districts, and, and state senate districts in California, they sometimes resemble modern art. Efforts to link uh, uh, democratic uh, groups in one county to another may have a bridge that goes like 100 yards wide down the seacoast. The districts really do have fantastic shapes to them. One L.A. district was described years ago as something that resembled an elephant playing the piano. And professional politicians have sneered at the idea of the public being able to come in and draw fairer district lines than the ones they do. But, but frankly, anybody can draw district lines that are fairer than the ones they do. But as always, the devil is in the details. So it would be a dream come true that if, if, if one of you, dear listeners, uh, uh, applied for this job and got involved with it and gave us the inside scoop, of course, that, that shouldn't be necessary. This commission is designed to be transparent with its records open to the public and members barred from discussing redistricting with outsiders, except in public hearings. The truth is this is unlikely to produce any you know, radical changes in California, but it should, it should produce some logic to why someone in one county uh, votes for the same assemblyman as someone in a different county. I believe at one point... Uh, people in Stockton were voting for the same person as people in Davis. I might be wrong about that, but, but it's, such bizarre examples are uh, commonly pop up, and it's time we had a change. We were big supporters of Prop 11, and we're glad to see this whole thing going forward finally. Final note of the day, if you didn't catch Terry Gross's interview with Jeremy Scahill about uh, Blackwater on National Public Radio, we suggest you go to Fresh Air and listen to it. It's a topic we will take up in a future show. Our thanks to Kel Munger, 
doing some fine work over the Sacramento News and Review about a uh, scary story we all need to stay on top of. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. I'm Douglas Everett. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. We'll see you next week, which will be Christmas. Christmas.